Hi, welcome to the Your Adrenal Fix podcast, where we help exhausted and burnt out adults learn the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their health back quickly. My name is Dr. Joel Rosen, and I've suffered with my own adrenal fatigue problem, and now I've made it my mission to tell the truth about adrenal fatigue so that we can get to the root cause of your problem and really teach you how to put the puzzle pieces together so that you could tap into your hidden energy reserves and have all day energy. So this podcast is for anyone who's struggling for years or feeling overwhelmed and burnt out or you're just feeling stuck you're going to get cutting edge information from all our different guests in different respected health fields to give you those important tidbits of information so that you can actually act on them and improve your health join us for our podcast i know you will enjoy it All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to another edition of About the Truth About Your Health podcast, where we teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about their health so that they can get their energy back quickly. And what a joy it is to have Martha Carlin here today, who is the founder, and I love the term, the chief executive revolutionary for the BioCollective. Uh, company where it aims to accelerate microbiome research by supporting robust, reproducible, and reliable results that allow the field to realize its full potential of life-saving discoveries. And she has a very unique story where in 2002, her husband, John, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And well, I'll let her tell uh, the story from there. So um, Martha, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Joel. Yeah, so I'm excited because you and I, and I say this in an enduring way, I think are both nerds and nerds found each other at the biohacking Congress and we started talking and we probably could have talked to hours and hours. And I think we had a couple of the times, maybe the presenters look back at us during the, the, their talk and say, like, hey, keep it down back there in the back row. So here we are today. And I really want to hear and have you share with our listeners just the genesis of where you got to today and maybe sort of a shortened version so that we can spend more time explaining what you've discovered along the way. So why don't you just tell us your journey, Martha? Sure. Well, my, my typical background uh, is in um, business operations. I was a, a turnaround expert and a head of operations for a large real estate investments trust. So totally out of the science field. In 2002, my husband, John, at the age of 44, was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And, you know, that's pretty shocking when you're young. We had uh, two small children and I had an older child. And, you know, I being a turnaround expert, I sort of looked at how the doctors, I mean, it was kind of like they just drop a bomb on you and say, here's a pill. We'll see in six months. There's nothing you can do. And that's just not who I am you know, I, I looked at it, I said, this is a systems problem. I need to understand the system in the same way I do a business. So I've got to start teaching myself science. So I started, um, and I really looked at food first, because that's, you know, food and water are the major flows through the body that really get ignored by traditional medicine. So I spent about 10 years really studying food, nutrition, you know, how we grow our food, the chemicals that are used on that. And then along the way, you know, came up to 2014 and read uh, Dr. Martin Blazer's book, Missing Microbes, about the rise of chronic disease, 
post antibiotics and how the antibiotics were destroying the microbiome. And a, a few months later, the first paper was published showing that you could map the two symptom phenotypes in Parkinson's to the microbiome. And I was like, Eureka, that's it. I quit my job. We sold our house, started funding research at the University of Chicago, looking at time series. And part of my interest in, in the type of sequencing we were doing which very few people at the time were doing whole genome sequencing. The microbiome has about 300 times more genes than the human genome. And I felt that that was gonna be the map to tying out some of the problems from genetically engineered food to be able to see that, uh, you know, all the uh, genes in the map. And so, you know, we've done over 150 whole genome samples of John's microbiome. And I um, went from there to founding the BioCollective with a researcher from the University of Chicago and a, a virologist, Dr. Suzanne Vernon, who had spent 17 years at the CDC studying chronic fatigue um, and viruses so that we could build a biobank of fecal samples to connect the dots across disease, not just in Parkinson's, uh, but along the way, I, I actually have become a, I think, a pretty good scientist. I mean, you, you call me a nerd. I'm, I'm a super nerd. <laughs> yeah, I said it with love. So, so to, to break it down to just for, for my brain to understand this, I, I love what you said in terms of food and water and, and taking it from a lay person at that time where you're certainly not now where, okay, my husband has this, I got to break down the system and, and look at the food and the water and how that um, is, is, I guess, assimilated and where it meets the inside of our, of our system, which is our microbiome. Can you explain what you meant in terms of mapping the, the biome and seeing when you had that eureka moment? So, so, so re repeat that again in terms of uh, an easier way for the person to, that maybe lay and they want to understand, okay, so what did you do? You found that there was a, um, a model that shows that these are the Parkinson patients type biome and, and this is what a normal biome is and then compare the two. Is that pretty much like how did it go wrong or what was the difference yes. between the two? So, you know, the initial study by Dr. Philip Shepherdhans in Finland uh, took, so they take fecal samples and they sequence those and compare, compare them to a healthy microbiome. And what he was able to show is, you know, there's a difference in a Parkinson's microbiome and then within Parkinson's, they can be subdivided to the people who have a tremor dominant symptoms versus people who have posture and gait. And from that point, there have been um, hundreds of microbiome papers in Parkinson's since that time. Um, you know, advancing, looking at proteins, looking at, um, you know, uh, other mechanisms related to, uh, you know, nutritional deficits and, you know, how the microbiome produces uh, neurochemistry. So, you know, it's just been a crazy emerging field um, since 2017. Right. You, you know, and then the next thing that you mentioned in terms of how much orders of magnitude the DNA for the microbiome and bacteria is compared to the human DNA. And it's like you said, an emerging field and it's almost overwhelming to be 
aware of what you don't know, right? It's like, oh my gosh, like as soon as you've had that eureka moment and now you find out all these other rabbit holes and you're not just comparing a Parkinson's patient to a, no, a quote unquote normal sample, but Parkinson patients that have this versus that. And then there's so many different other rabbit holes to, to go down. And so I would love to discuss with you what you're learning sort of from there, which is a slippery slope because there are so many ways we can go. But just to recap, you said, okay, I have this eureka moment. And so I'm going to do like the, the turnaround person that I am. I'm going to go all in because it's my husband and his health and life is on the line. And I want to make sure that we figure this out. So you, you started your, your, the bio collective and you have different testing procedures and different ways to, to figure things out. So kind of go from there, like tell us what sort of what was the next, how things unfolded and where we are. Sure. So we started out, I mean, it was just really early in the microbiome space, but we collected whole uh, fecal samples. So, you know, we designed a kit and patented it and started collecting a, a biobank, if you will. Um, and, you know, one of the more interesting things we learned in the process, our lab people uh, could actually tell a person with Parkinson's from looking at their fecal sample without knowing they had Parkinson's. It was that distinct from other samples coming through the lab and, and the key tell um, was a lack of water homeostasis. So the, the fecal samples were more like concrete and a diagnosis of, uh, well, uh, chronic constipation can precede a diagnosis of Parkinson's by 10 to 15 years. So I think, and there's nothing in the published literature about this water issue. Um, so that was a really interesting learning that sort of provided some clues for us of, of where to look. But, you know, we were uh, doing the genomic sequencing and providing a, almost a 50 page report of all these genes and information and people would take it and try to have their doctor look at it. And it's just, it's really too much. So after we built our biobank to a point where we had a sufficient amount of samples and data to start to connect the dots uh, kind of across diseases, but, you know, we had a hundred Parkinson's patients um, we stopped collecting samples and then really started digging deeper into the analytics of what is going on in the microbiome, what, what can we see um, indicators. And um, from that, uh, you know, one of the more interesting things, we did some machine learning uh, with a, a, a Polish uh, company called Artigen, where we found these uh, biomarkers. And one of those, one of the key markers was in glycosylation, which, you know, for people, if they're not familiar with that, um, it's basically the decorating of proteins with sugars. And, you know, one of those is hemoglobin. So it ties back to hemoglobin A1C. And, you know, from that, we went back into the literature and saw um, this connection in the Parkinson's research of um, you know, comorbidities in glucose metabolism. And there's, I think about 65% of people with Parkinson's have some insulin uh, dysregulation component. And 
you know, there, there's even a, an area of research called uh, looking at what's called type three diabetes, which may be insulin resistance in the brain. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm loving the, the genesis and the growth of it. And I'm following the, you know, as you tell me, okay, so we started to produce a, a collecting uh, method. And as these samples came in, we were able to know without even comparing them to the norm that this person had uh, a Parkinson presentation because there's so much similarity to what the Parkinson, I guess, the, the characteristics of that sample looked like to the point where we finally had enough. And now let's actually do some studies and figure this out. And, and this is where we are now. And, and, and looking at the inborn error of, of energy production, right? Which we look at as cancer as a metabolic disease and ultimately any neurological disease or any health challenge is a metabolic breakdown. And ultimately your, your cells are not converting the food you eat with the air you breathe into, into water and energy. And on top of that, like you just said, the, the foods are adulterated. There's not a lot of minerals in there. And unfortunately, well, tragically, there's so many chemical disruptors and things that you were just talking about. And, and then your body isn't able to use oxygen effectively to produce energy. And then it has a, um, a way of making energy more efficiently um, by fermenting glucose. And then that has an imprint on the biome. So let's talk about where you want to go from there, Martha. There's sure. so many ways we can go. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my early focuses, you know, going all the way back to the beginning was um, looking at the uh, herbicide glyphosate and how glyphosate is used in farming. And there, you know, it translates out in a number of ways because um, the bacteria in our gut are producing a lot of those vitamins, hormones, and neurotransmitters. And glyphosate actually selects for a more pathogenic profile in the microbiome and destroys some of those key vitamin producers. Um, and so, you know, that was an, an area that I was, you know, really interested in is trying to sort of figure that out, um, you know, the glyphosate connection. The other thing, and I know you've talked about this on some of your other shows is, you know, glyphosate was originally uh, patented as a, uh, a chemical to clean uh, scale from pipes. It's a very powerful chelator. And so it's not only chelating metals from our body, it's chelating metals from the soil, it's chelating metals out of plants. So, you know, we're just getting less and less um, nutrition. Um, and I discovered a, a, a book by a researcher from the Cleveland Clinic, um, Dr. I think it's Derek Lonsdale. He's no longer alive, but um, he has a, a book called, I think it's called uh, High Calorie Malnutrition and Thiamine Deficiency. Um, so again, back to those B vitamins, which are made by the, the gut bacteria, uh, you know, you, you have the, this interconnection of what's going on in the food supply and how that's impacting the microbiome. Also in the, you know, in that same uh, pathway in the bacteria, 
um, the, the first enzyme in something called the shikimate pathway is a copper dependent enzyme. And, you know, copper is depleted because of glyphosate. And then further downstream of that biochemistry is dopamine production. So you're impacting, you know, dopamine production as well uh, through those foods. And so along the way, just trying to figure out, okay, how do I maybe solve some of these problems? I actually attended a conference um, where researchers from Israel were showing that the sugar alcohol mannitol could stop the aggregation of the proteins uh, that are the hallmark in Parkinson's. And in this animal model, they could actually pull them out of the brain. Well, mannitol is a really interesting molecule. It's a uh, very powerful free radical scavenger. It's used to treat brain swelling. It's used in um, uh, like the delivery of, to enhance the delivery of medication across the blood brain barrier. It's also used in scientific research to keep the mitochondria happy. Um, so, you know, I came back and actually started studying mannitol chemistry and found, oh, wow, there's, uh, there's a small handful of bacteria that produce mannitol from glucose and fructose. I wonder if we could put a factory back into the gut to make mannitol. And so, you know, we, we prototyped a product uh, and it actually converts glucose and fructose um, into mannitol, which humans don't use, we eliminate it. Um, and so that was sort of my first step in trying to figure out how can I do something to help John? And at the time that we made that formula to test for him, he was walking with a cane and, and not doing as well as he had been. And within a month, we're measuring his microbiome and we could see it moving back closer and closer to the healthy human microbiome profile. And in about 30 days, he was no longer walk, walking with a cane. Um, so, you know, we took that concept of, you know, how can we start to look at the microbiome as something that can be supported and modulated. And in our formula, we actually had a, a, a focus on identifying strains of bacteria that were um, good vitamin producers, uh, but could also withstand glyphosate because you can't get away from it in the food supply and break glyphosate all the way down because in the biochemistry of, of glyphosate, when it breaks down, most bacteria break it down to something called AMPA, which is toxic to the brain, even more toxic than glyphosate. Whereas we have a strain of bacteria that breaks it all the way down to carbon phosphate and water. And so, you know, you're, you're back down to your elemental uh, level where you can eliminate something without harm. No, it's, it's amazing information. So the way that I think about the next question is, is that, okay, the, how, how, if we have something now, again, just sort of a, a quick response from you, what, what would be the purpose from a, why would they even put glyphosate in our soils? Was that because they want to make sure that they're killing uh, pests and things so that they get better crops? Is that what was the purpose? I mean, from a just an outer line laying um, sort of sure. feedback? Well, glyphosate is a very powerful herbicide. 
So, you know, it for simplification, you know, they can spray it on on the fields and they engineered um, resistance, glyphosate resistance into corn and soy and some of these other crops so that they could just spray the whole field. You know, if you think about how crops have been grown and people have to spend time weeding and doing things like that, uh, you know, they were trying to make it more efficient. So by engineering resistance genes into the plants, then they can spray the field and only those plants that are resistant, the corn and the soil, soy would, uh, you know, survive and the weeds would die. But what we've seen over the last, you know, 30, 40 years is the weeds have developed resistance as well. So then you get, you know, more years, more chemicals, more, and, you know, glyphosate isn't the only herbicide or chemical that's used on the food. And, you know, there are many mechanisms. If you go back to these herbicides um, that were actually nerve gas um, from World War I and World War II, um, that, you know, the chemical companies looked for another use and put them into agriculture. But, you know, if you look at how those nerve gases work, um, you know, they're messing with acetylcholine receptors or, you know, other um, neurotransmitter mechanisms in the body. And now we're putting them on our food and eating them all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's helpful for you. Thank you for sharing the, the beginning of what the, what the thought process was to ultimately comes down to the dollar and how could we get better yield but the ignorance of, okay, well, it's going to be resistant. So nothing else is going to be problematic with that. Ultimately, when we eat it, then we have the same engineering in our microbiome that's been designed to impact the the crops and make them resistant to glyphosate, but yet at the same time, expose them to glyphosate and mess up the diversity in our microbiome to not be able to break down uh, the glyphosate or impact the the dopamine and and different areas in our body that ultimately helps us make energy at the level that we need to, and then becomes neurotoxic and a whole slew of other downstream uh, impacts. And then from your research, you saw that mannitol is one of these things that can help break down glyphosate more effectively and and how can we or not so much more effectively deal with it better or be able to yeah, well, the mannitol is actually not what's breaking it down. It's actually, so we have a, a species of lactobacillus plantarum that has okay. a specific uh, genetic function that enables it to break the glyphosate all the way down. Right. So, and uh, good, I appreciate your scientific mind because, well, that's not actually true, Joel. It's this that does that, but the glyphosate helps this in that area. So that, right. The, I mean, the mannitol that helps. Yeah. The mannitol actually, mannitol is a free radical scavenger. It's a six carbon sugar and it's, you know, it's picking up uh, hydrogens, but um, it also modulates pH. And if you look in, uh, you know, the literature on fermentation production of proteins, um, you actually, the more acidic the pH is, the more protein production you get in a fermentation. So the mannitol um, is a neutral molecule and it's modulating pH, which is probably part of that mechanism. Altering pH is altering the, the proteins in the gut. 
Right. And then there, I'm sure as we continue to talk, there's other important ingredients in, in formulations to get and continue to, to, to grow, to be able to address as many, as many physiological impacts or breakdowns or improvements as, as possible. I just had an aside and I know there's the biome company that does the whole sequencing. What's, what's your feedback on that? What's your sense on, on what they do? So, you know, I think there's, there's Viome, there's, um, there's a company called Day2 that was, uh, uh, you know, based on some research between the Weizmann Institute and the Mayo Clinic. Um, you know, they're, they're taking different approaches. I mean, it was interesting to me because I sent uh, samples to, to both Day2 and Viome uh, from the same fecal sample and got very different food recommendations. Now that was four years ago. And I think the you know, the field has continued to advance and certainly Viome has, um, you know, they, they have a lot of funding and they're doing a lot of research. Um, so I think it's an interesting concept. I do think that we're still a number of years away from being able to, you know, perfectly and ideally, um, map uh, a, a solution for somebody from looking at, you know, certainly not a single microbiome sample because, you know, the gut changes based on your diet and, you know, from week to week. I mean, you can alter your microbiome in, in less than a week by shifting your, you know, shifting your diet to a high fiber diet or, you know, going to a ketogenic diet, you're going to, you're going to change your um, microbiome dramatically. Right. And, and again, I appreciate it. I always say I do these interviews for myself for information and then everyone else that's listening to it gets to hear me over my shoulder and like, oh, I'm taking notes. So so as far as the concept with the biome company is, hey, we'll do a, a sequencing of your current real time microbiome, which would be different from days and weeks and months and years ago based on what you ate, what your stress levels were, uh, where you traveled to, all of the above. And there's so many dynamics, but how, what's the thought process, Martha, in terms of how are they extrapolating that sequence and saying, okay, these are the foods that you, you'd be better to eat versus not eating? Well, you know, Viomes is, it, it's proprietary. They do uh, something called transcriptomics. So you know, theirs is a, a, a quite a bit different than somebody who's looking at genomics. So, um, right. you know, I I think it would probably be better if you could maybe get somebody from Viome to right, right. rather than for me right. really speculate right. about what they do. I mean, it is interesting because I think actually it may tie in a little bit to um you know, some of the work I've done in Parkinson's in something called molecular mimicry, because, um, you know, they, they are looking at um, RNA viruses. And there were some, uh, there were some things that like, they told me not to eat green beans, because there was a specific mosaic virus from the green bean that might be a problem for me. Um, and, I actually got interested in molecular mimicry from uh, research of a Dr. Robert Friedland uh, at the University of Louisville, who showed, so people who smoke don't get Parkinson's at, at the same rate. And I'm not recommending that anybody go out and smoke, but what Dr. Friedland found was there is a tobacco mosaic virus that 
uh, does mimics um, something that is connected with Parkinson's disease in, in a way that, you know, if you're, if you've come in contact and you're carrying that tobacco mosaic virus, it's almost like a vaccine uh, against Parkinson's. So that was a really interesting area as we started looking at different um, microorganisms in the Parkinson's gut and sort of mapping that into this molecular mimicry concept, you know, bacteria produce something called a heat shock protein. I don't want to get too nerdy on you, but it, you know, it's a little peptide sequence that is, it's kind of a danger signal. You know, if the bacteria are under stress, um, you know, they're putting out this little peptide and those sequences you know, it's a series of amino acids, basically, are the body then recognizes that creates, um, you know, the immune system reacts, and you get antibodies to this heat shock protein. Well, as it turns out, there's a number of those that are similar to human proteins. And so you can get this um, autoimmune reaction. And the same thing is, you know, there's also similar um, heat shock proteins in plants. So you can sort of get this perfect storm. And one in particular that has been of interest to us is uh, something called um, alpha crystalline, which um, it turns out that wheat has the most closely aligned um, alpha crystalline to human alpha B crystalline. And um, mycobex species also produce that and they produce another um, heat shock protein or they produce another peptide sequence uh, for something called cardiolipin. And so we started looking at those pieces in this concept of molecular mimicry and what might be going on in the immune system with people with Parkinson's having kind of what I characterize as a chronic low-grade infection of multiple organisms, you know, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and all of that goes back again to an unhealthy immune system because our nutrition, we don't have the minerals, we don't have, you know, we, we don't have the vitamin production, you know, the, the, the body is just not well tuned to fight off these pathogens. Yeah, amazing. Thanks for for bringing it back to that. And and that's what we talked about earlier is is that if you don't I really do believe we have the inborn innate power to heal ourselves when we have the right minerals and nutrients that is grown from our earth and not from a lab and patented and made millions of dollars from. But then on top of that, the downstream effect of chelating minerals from herbicides and pesticides not only strip the the foods we eat of these healthy, healthy, in, vital ingredients, but it also messes up our factory and our ability to, to make the minerals from our microbiome. And then ultimately we have stress responses or beacons sent out by our, our bacteria. And we ultimately create a response to that, which is perhaps an immune response, which is an antibody, just as if I had 
um, an exposure to a virus, my body creates a uh, antibody to it. Or, if I, you know, just the way that vaccines works is that concept. If you give a small little attenuated dose or whatever new ways they're doing it, you get uh, an antibody. So you've developed a an immune response, which isn't your inheritable immune response. It's an acquired immune response, which now you have an antibody to. And the mimicry is very similar if the protein structure in wheat is very similar to the protein structure in your gut or in your brain or in your skin or wherever they may be. And you've developed an antibody to that peptide or the protein structure in the food source because of a stress response, because of adulteration of our food supply and lack of minerals, now you're creating an, a, a, an attack against your own tissues. And that can cause fill in the blank autoimmunity. So where, I guess from there, um, take us wherever you want to go, Martha, on that. Well, you know, I think if, if we go back again, you know, you hear a lot of discussion, you know, in the last, say, four to five years about something called leaky gut. And, the, you know, part of that mechanism of activating the immune system is when these um, are crossing the gut lining because it's, quote, leaky. Well, if I if we go back and look at the, the bacteria that, um, you know, that we find more prevalent in the Parkinson's gut, um, there are actually um, a number of organisms there that produce something called poor forming toxins or different kinds of toxins. And what, what those toxins can do is, you know, form little holes in your cells, they can affect your, your gut lining. And so, you know, that's just kind of another piece of that puzzle that is um, exacerbating that, you know, vicious cycle loop from the gut, the immune system, you know, the overactivation um, and the, you know, dysregulation of everything in the microbiome. And, you know, we tell, you know, I say I, I knew instantly, um, you know, when I read that Parkinson's paper in the book on the antibiotics that, you know, that was just such a eureka for me that my training is as an accountant and, um, the gut is the general ledger. I mean, it really is that record. And we can start to see, especially, you know, when we have this very detailed genetic information, you can start to really, you know, map these pieces of the puzzle, you know, back into uh, the contributing factors to, to, you know, what's going on, not just with Parkinson's. I mean, it's really evident you know, across diseases in our, our data. And we've looked at that um, in an, you know, we've looked at IBS, we've looked at smokers, we've, we've looked at uh, cancer. Um, so, you know, I, I think what we're going to see as this field continues to emerge is, you know, an incredible acceleration of understanding how these things are impacting the gut bacteria and how important, I mean, really we're, we're more microbial than we are human in terms of um, how we function. And if we don't have that functional diversity, you know, we can't, we can't be healthy. Yeah. I, you know, I love it. I have a quote down. The gut is the general ledger. That's awesome yeah. quote. Uh, and as far as 
a couple of things that I think about is, again, as complex as this is, the solution is to get nutrients and minerals that we've been made to have and as best we can get them from what's grown in our healthy soils. And you don't have to be a scientist to just have really nutritionally dense foods that allow our body to recognize that and not create stress alerts and not create antibodies and have cross reactions and create autoimmunities, but actually get the food from our, from our sources and, and let the body heal. That's, that's one thing I think about for people that are listening. Sounds you have something you want to add to that? Well, I mean, so I, really when I started seeing what was going on here and tying it back to my original digging into nutrition and food and, and how our food has grown, um, had a clear understanding that it's going to be very difficult for us as a population to fix our guts if we don't also fix our food. You know, and I'm very fortunate. My chief scientific officer of my company uh, is a, a a, a real gem, Dr. Uh, Raul Cano was a professor of microbiology at Cal Poly for over 30 years. And he was a pioneer in using basically microbial ecosystems, you know, putting microbes together to clean up oil spills. And so we have another company outside of the bio collective uh, called Paleobiotica that took, uh, that has taken a collection of his, uh, ancient microbes that he uh, revived out of um, amber occlusions and deep sea cores um, and has combined those into um, agricultural products that we're bringing to the market. This year we'll be the, we'll do a small scale test, but you know, we have filed a patent for the bioremediation of glyphosate in soil and water using our microbial systems and for improving nutritional uptake in plants, plant growth, all of that, because, you know, we've destroyed the biome of the soil and all of that is, you know, it's an, it's a chain reaction. So we must restore the soil to restore the plant nutrition, to restore the animal nutrition, to destroy, to, to um, support our new, our nutrition. And, uh, you know, you can start growing some food in your backyard. And we actually, we're, we're doing a little, um, sample on our BiotiQuest website where the product's called Yield and Shield. So in your backyard garden, if you, um, you know, are interested in trying a, a, a microbial solution to help support your soil health, we're going to have that launched here probably in another week. No, that's awesome. And I, and that's a, I love the, the rabbit holes and just how you've gotten more bitten off more than you can chew when you start to realize, oh my gosh, now it's the implications on saving the earth. And it really is from the point of view, you can't just, yeah, you could tr try to grow your own food, but as a society and as a world being, you, you have to restore your, your earth to be able to get those soils back yeah. together and heal. So I love that, Martha. As far as um, you know, I don't know if you stuck around for the whole conference, but uh, Dr. Pompa had talked about how when we had the oil spill in the in the oceans and we had Chernobyl and we thought our our earth was and probably even uh, what was it in Japan? Fukushima. We, we thought, yeah, Hiroshima. We feel that 
that will impact the earth to the point of no return. But then we have this inborn ability of hormetic stress, right? Where our body gets a little exposed to something, but it makes it stronger. Um, and we found that it ultimately did. So I guess the question is, how much does hormetic stress, even though the fundamentals need to be replaced, does that um, impact our ability to deal with this so that it's not the skies falling and we're forever past that point of no return? Sure. Well, you know, if you look at something like whether it's Chernobyl or Fukushima, um, you know, it's a it's a aggressive assault and then a, a stepping back from that. And so the the ecosystem rebounds, uh, you know, through a selection and, you know, microbes uh, evolve much faster than we do. So they're able to, you know, evolve and figure out what needs to be done and help uh, restore the ecosystem better when we just leave them alone. Where, right. you know, where our biggest issue we have, I think, is still this, um, you know, on our food supply side, it's, it's still this sort of, oh, you know, these chemicals we're using are not a problem. And so it's not hormetic stress, it is constant stress. So, you know, the hormetic stress is like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like push you or I'm gonna fast for 48 hours or, you know, something like that, as opposed to I'm constantly assaulting my system, uh, you know, with something that's toxic. So I, I do think we have to be, um, you know, very thoughtful in the, in what we put in our body, we are made of the molecules we eat. And so, you know, when you're putting something about to put something in your mouth, you should think, do I want to be made of this? And, you know, one of the things I talk to people a lot about is um, sugar because, you know, glucose and fructose um, are, you know, such damaging molecules in the way that we're ingesting them. And I know you talked to Morley Robbins about how fructose blocks copper uptake. Um, but, you know, one of our key markers in Parkinson, again, is, you know, this glycosylation. And, you know, I know many people with Parkinson's who have, uh, you know, sweet tooth, uh, sugar cravings, they're carb loaders. My husband was a marathon runner. So he was trained to be a carbohydrate engine um, in order to run those marathons. And, uh, you know, I think just really starting to, to think about this lower carb, low carb um, living and what, what sugars are doing to us. And that sort of brings me back around to that, the, the mannitol product that we made uh, for John. I mean, one of the key things that we found from it, um, you know, I, I made it to make mannitol, but it actually alters uh, glucose metabolism in such a way that we did a small study where uh, people dropped uh, fasting blood glucose by 10 milligrams per deciliter over about eight weeks. And we're now, we actually have that in a diabetes clinical trial um, because I think, you know, sugar feeds cancer, uh, sugar is a problem in Parkinson's and neurological diseases, uh, you know, uh, 
glycation is an indication of, uh, you know, aging. So all, all of these sort of pieces come back to, you know, what we're putting in our body and sugar, certainly carbohydrates being one of those things that we need to be more mindful about. Yeah, no, Martha, that's an awesome answer, especially as far as the hormetic stressor goes. It's not meant to be a constant stress. It's meant to be a, a short exposure be, to, to be able to stimulate that homeostatic allostasis load in the body. And I love the other answer in terms of microbes and, and bacteria are, are basically designed to do that. Their, their intelligence is to mimic what's being exposed to them and, and account or accommodate for that. So that's an awesome answer. And then I love how you're going down the idea of, well, how can we harness that? Like notwithstanding everything being equal, like that doesn't change the onus on us understanding what we're eating and making sure that we work to change our soils and really I think even deeper purposes have legislative changes as well which is a is a Samson or David versus Goliath yeah, type thing a, right yeah. but um as far as so maybe talk well I want to talk a little bit about that the sugar because I think that's a really important point and as far as what are you what is it that's inherent in the product and not just, is it just the mannitol in the, in the probiotic or are there engineered other, you were mentioning other, the lactobacillus, like what is in that product that is doing direct impact on glucose? Sure. So, you know, there are three primary organisms in the formula that do the conversion of glucose and fructose into mannitol. And that is a strain of bacteria that you don't find in a lot of probiotics called Leuconostoc mesentroides. That actually, uh, that strain- say that, was, say that three times fast. Let's hear you say it right now. Yeah. <laughs> Leuconostoc mesentroides. Um, it's, uh, it's found in a lot of fermented foods. Um, we isolated it from sauerkraut, from cabbage I grew in my own garden and fermented and stored for over four years before uh, we isolated the, that organism. Uh, we ha it has lactobacillus reuteri, uh, which is also an oxytocin producer, and uh, reuteri also makes mannitol, and then uh, a strain of bacteria called Bacillus subtilis, which is a spore-forming organism that also uh, makes uh, mannitol. But these organisms, so we have uh, a computational model called Bioflux where we can predict how these organisms work together. And what we see is we designed the formula to make mannitol, but it also increases the production of butyrate, which feeds the lining of the gut and supports that. Um, it's also uh, altering something called siderophores, which um, is basically sequestering iron from pathogens and eliminating that from the body. Um, the, the plantarum, the strain of plantarum actually came from fermented elderberries from my neighborhood. Um, and um, so we've really tried to look for and select strains with genetics, natural genetics. Um, so none of our organisms are engineered um, that, you know, have those functions that, that we, we see that we need. And then we put them together 
and run them through our computational model to make sure that, that you know, as a group, they're going to collectively do what we want them to do. And so, you know, that's kind of, it's an eight strain formula, um, but those are some of the, the key strains that, um, you know, are powerhouses for us. There's also a lactobacillus paracasei, and I think um, that one also helps with the breakdown of proteins, um, which, you know, could also be helpful in Parkinson's. Yeah, and listen, I don't think it's just helpful for Parkinson's, you know, 88% of our population is metabolically sick, and ultimately Parkinson's, even though it attacks certain tissues in the body, it's the same mechanism of being metabolically sick, and it's the same mechanisms of the different strains that impact the physiology favorably that would help anyone. And I'm really excited about that for sure, especially the oxytocin, just as an aside, when we do genetic test interpretations, one of the main genetic test uh, SNPs that we look at is the oxytocin receptor. And when people have polymorphisms with that, they tend to be more empathetic people. And I always explain that as the first thing that I explain when we go through a genetic test interpretation, because when you have the antenna sticking out of your head a lot more and it's bringing in all these frequencies, it's going to drive that oxygen consumption rate super high. And if you're not respiring at the level you need to, and you're fermenting glucose, and that's creating all the things that we've talked about, given that your microbiome can't do this, that, and the other, it's going to make things a lot worse. On top of that, what's amazing about oxytocin is it, it suppresses the NADPH oxidase that creates the free radicals, that creates the mast cells, that creates the histamines, uh, I love the idea of fermented foods. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people that have these major GI challenges, it's a catch-22 because they are already fermenting from a biological point of view. So any other foods that they get that are fermented typically kick that ocean floor. And I know you got to say something here in a second, but at the same time, the fermented foods, if you look at longitarians or blue zone countries, I think they've worked it into their dietary supply to have the microbiome to be able to deal with the fermented foods. And instead of that could be another general ledger as well, in terms of if you can tolerate fermented foods, you know, you're on the surplus or you're in the black. And if you can't tolerate it, you're right. in, in the red, right? Does that make sense? It does. And I, the, the only people that I've had that um, have had an issue with the, the sugar shift product is people who are super in, sensitive to, to FODMAPs. Um, but, you know, the way our product works, you know, a lot of probiotics are using new capsules and designs to try to get it all the way past the upper GI tract and down into the colon. But I actually you know, because you're eating the sugar up here um, and so many people have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, you know, you want to get those sugars out before they get down to, to feeding, you know, the, the SIBO organisms. So, you know, for the most part, people don't have a, a challenge with the product, even though, you know, mannitol is a sugar alcohol, it's making a small amount of it. Um, but, um, 
you know, you're, you're, you're doing this conversion and, you know, helping to address, I think, uh, the, the feeding of the sugars in the upper GI tract. But, you know, what I, I do tell people if they've got a high level of fermented food sensitivity, they need to deal with that first by like addressing the pathogens in their biome. But, you know, one of the interesting things in the data when we did before and after, uh, you know, first on John and then uh, another group of people who took the product is um, streptococcus. um, Going all the way back to some of my observational stuff and talking with people with Parkinson's, um, people with Parkinson's had a quite a few of them had this history in their childhood of having frequent strep infections and taking antibiotics a lot. And so that was sort of interesting to me. I looked at, um, so I talked to 23andMe and they also looked in their data and there was an increased risk of Parkinson's disease with people who had had uh, four or more strep infections. Dr. Shepperhans went on to show this correlation uh, with antibiotics and strep is also an interesting organism in, in, you know, in minerals and, um, iron in particular, it, it uses its iron to feed cross feed some other pathogens. I'm probably going way down the rabbit hole here, but, um, the, the preferred food for streptococcus is glucose. It loves to grow on glucose. And what we found in, you know, our before and after testing with the sugar shift formula was that, uh, streptococcus was almost disappearing completely. And when we did machine learning with all of our samples across the population, we found um, that people who had more than 1% relative abundance of streptococcal species in their gut were in some kind of disease category. They weren't all in the same disease category, but the people who were healthy had below 1% streptococcus in their gut. So this alteration, you know, I say like, uh, you know, we design a formula that is not just putting in a bacteria, but it's altering the landscape of the gut. And, you know, that's what our focus is to put a working system in place that can both deliver the metabolites you're looking for, say butyrate um, or energy production, um, but also transform the landscape that makes the ecosystem there, uh, you know, better for a better flora. Yeah. I mean, that is the true sort the harnessing the hermetic consequence or the effect of stress and putting that into the microbiome. It's, I almost think of it as calling it a harmonizer because we have a, uh, a friend, I have a friend that has, uh, he owns Therisage and they have a harmonizer for EMF. So it doesn't block it. It harmonizes it to change the frequencies so that it's not deleterious to us. That's one thing. Um, but as far as part two, cause Martha, I, we gotta, we gotta not, I'd, I'd love to go forever. We definitely will do part two if you're willing. Cause I have so many more questions. This is much more, uh, rich than I had anticipated. So I know that on top of the 
the correlations, like I think part two would be, okay, now that we've talked about the microbiome, what other correlating epigenetic or genetic factors have you seen? And I think you and I hopefully found something together in that, hey, there's this antibody to parietal cells or this B12 thing that is copper dependent and or needs uh, a lot more, has a lot more expression. There's also the fact when you and I talked initially I, and you were telling me he was a marathoner, and I was thinking about, well, I bet you he wasn't doing it in an aerobic way, meaning he's highly conditioned, but he's also charging his anaerobic energy systems to be plasticized, if you will, and being taught to go down this pathway. So when you feed it with sugar and you put in the glyphosates and you do all these other things, it's that perfect storm. And then, of course, the genetic susceptibilities as well. So um, so many things we can go with that. And, and I'll allow you to have a, a comment here in a second. The other thing I wanted to do or talk to you about was I mentioned to you, hey, like I, I also have a lot of clients that have these perfect storm issues of they also have um, not the ability to lower glutamates or they don't have the ability to lower histamines. Is there in the foreseeable future putting that all in one product or would it have to be complementary, Martha, and have like a couple of different products? Like what, what's your thought process on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think we could we could certainly look at that. Um, you know, our model is set up in a way. So, you know, if glutamine is the target and you want to figure out how to sort of clean that out and get rid of it we can identify, you know, organisms that can do that and, you know, look at, you know, can that, can you have a one size fits all, or do you have to kind of take some steps along the way? Um, right. and, and, you know, one, you know, one of the other things to really look at is, you know, if, if there's a connection to what's in the microbiome, then how do you kind of alter the landscape uh, to get rid of the problem that's there to, to enable, you know, what you're, you're putting into work better. Yeah. And I also think you're right too, in terms of, I didn't mean to say like, Oh, the people that have um, uh, an issue with fermented foods um, shouldn't take the sugar shift product i think more it's more of a tell of constitution like this is i always say to people excuse the language this isn't a friggin magic wand right like you sure. still you don't dissolve yourself of the responsibility of removing processed foods and sugary foods and making sure that you settle down inflammation and you restore your mineral balance and you get your magnesium levels up and you remove all the things that are draining your bio all the things that you and i know right. with our with morally so um i guess in 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 concluding the number one because i really do want to do number two if you will uh, i always ask my guests because there's so many things we haven't talked about what would you like to have known because I, I call it the truth about health podcast because i think there are a lot of lies and deceits and bad nefarious reasons for doing things and all profit steer profit, you know, in the name of profit. But with that, without that being said, Martha, what do you wish you would have known then that, you know, now that you might've implemented in yours or John's health to, to avoid, or at least maximize the constitution to not be so, I guess, um, susceptible to something like, like, a, like a Parkinson's. 
You know, I, I, I think just very early on, um, I wish I had deeper knowledge about the food and the chemicals that were in the food. Um, you know, I look, uh, my, my oldest son who works for me is in his thirties and he has a lot of allergies and inflammatory issues. And, you know, I look back at, you know, when he was little, you know, eating craft macaroni and cheese and, you know, things that, or, you know, cereal, um, you know, there's just a lot of things about the food that, um, you know, I was just ignorant. And, um, so I, I think that is the one thing that and the, and the water. So when we started actually looking at the water and filtering the water and, you know, making sure that we're taking minerals because we're now filtering the minerals out of the water. Um, you know, if I had known what I know now, 25 years ago, you know, maybe none of this would have happened, but, you know, hindsight's 2020 and, you know, I'm on this journey and, you know, sometimes John and I talk about like we were brought together and sometime I'll tell you that story because <laughs> it's a pretty amazing story. Um, you know, we were brought together on this planet to make a difference. And, you know, I, I say it with all honesty, I feel that I'm here to save the world. And, you know, I'm doing that through the soil and through the human microbiome and through, you know, all of my mission to educate people and, and help people to really understand we do have the power to heal ourselves. And we have the power to say no to what's being pushed at us. And, you know, we can take back our land and our lives and our health. Awesome answer. And I'm glad that our frequencies aligned and gotten to coherence because I'm on board to help in any way that I that I can. I think part two will entail water, the story of how you met John, and then all the other things that we have in terms of uh, other epigenetic uh, perfect storms, if you will. But I agree with you, Martha. It's never a uh, a curse in that you have this ailment or affliction because what comes out of it is is better is is the world benefits, but also you've um, come closer and you've done developed uh, things that are helpful for John and continue to be because I've liked the the term healing or Parkinson's or life is a verb. It's not a noun, right? So Martha, I thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to part two. And um, I guess we could end there and, uh, and set up a time for, for a time to reconvene. Appreciate you having me. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of your Adrenal Fix podcast, where our goal is really to teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their energy back quickly. And if you happen to be suffering with your own exhaustion and fatigue-based problems and you're not getting answers and you're frustrated and you're concerned and you really want to get back to the things that you're not able to do, then maybe it's time for you and I to book a discovery call. 
if that makes sense to you or what we talked about makes sense to you, then this is an opportunity for you and I to troubleshoot and figure out what's going on in your body, what's not working, what have you tried, how's it impacting you. Most importantly, figure out where you wanna go with your health and why you're not able to bridge that gap. And if I feel I can help you and all the things that you need to be doing, I can recommend to you, I'll let you know. And if I don't know, I'll tell you that too. But my goal is for you to leave this call with a step-by-step game plan to learn how to bridge that gap and get your life back quickly. If I feel I can help you, I'll tell you what that will look like to work together. However, there's no obligation to do any further work and there's no charge for the call whatsoever. It's just really a one-on-one time for you and my team member or myself to get true value out of what's not working with your health and what are you missing in order for you to make that next step. If that makes a lot of sense to you, then go ahead and go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com, all one word, adrenalfatigueworkshop.com forward slash apply. Now spacing is limited and it's a first come first first served basis and you have to be willing to to make that next step to get your health back or at least be serious about it if we feel we can help each other just go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com forward slash apply and i look forward to giving you value and getting you your health back